That was awesome. In addition to that child dedication in the first service this morning, uh, Pastor Hank and Shell um, dedicated um, Kennedy Marie, and the uh, Souter family dedicated uh, their youngest, Rosalind Souter. Uh, the last time I preached in August, the message was on Colossians 3.12, and I'd actually like to come back to that text today as well, uh, Colossians 3.12, part 2, we'll call it. I invite you to turn with me to Colossians 3, and I'll begin reading from verse 5. <clears throat> Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for this particular part of your word. Thank you for using it to feed us and to challenge us and to teach us your way. So we pray that you would, um, would use it in our lives today. We pray as well for the women who are at the women's retreat as they hear your word there. We ask your blessing on their service um, as well as your blessing on ours here. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I also meant to say, sorry, Pastor Woody and Kim have traveled to Columbia to visit their son, Zach, in case you were wondering where Pastor Woody is today. Um, we told him before he was not allowed to ever leave the country again because he doesn't do very well, but he did leave the country again, and he's safely in Columbia with Zach. Uh, so pray for them. Um, they're there for a number of days yet this week. Paul instructs us in this passage, beginning in verse 9, that when a person becomes a Christian, there ought to be a complete change in his or her person. There's a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new self. Our life in Christ is to be a continual recreating, a lifelong recreating. Paul shares some of the old self that's to be put off, the things that are to be done away with. Putting off the old self includes ridding our lives of sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language, lying, as well as the barriers that divide and the tendency to discount people different than you. Then Paul goes on to share that those in Christ are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And as God's loved people, we're not only to take off things that were part of our old self, but we're also to put on the virtues and graces of Christ himself. The first one we're told to put on is compassion, a heart of pity, tenderheartedness. The King James translation says bowels of mercies. And compassion is what we focused on as we looked at this passage in August. Compassion for Jesus was the visceral response to seeing need. It's something that we feel, something that moves us. 
The second virtue of Christ that we're told to put on in this passage is kindness. Kindness, it seems to me, is the working out of compassion. The two go together like two sides of a coin. The New International Reader's Version links them together by translating verse 12 as, so put on tender mercy and kindness as if they were your clothes. Ephesians 4.32 also links the two together. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Vine's Expository Dictionary, in its entry about kindness, says it signifies not merely goodness as quality, rather it is goodness in action, goodness expressing itself in deeds, in grace and tenderness and compassion. In 2003, I led a group of young people on a missions trip to Nicaragua, where Marshall and Eleanor Poe were serving as missionaries for BIC World Missions. We arrived in Veracruz, a town outside of Managua, quite late on Friday evening, and we met the families who would be hosting us in their homes outside the church in the dark of the night. They walked us to their homes, helped us get settled, and we experienced our first night of sleeping in the homes of strangers, which is an awkward experience even without the language difference. First thing Saturday morning, our group met together back at the church building for an orientation with Marshall. He talked with us about why we were there, and he cited several things. First, he said we had raised money to help the church in Veracruz build their building. They had sacrificed as a congregation for a number of years to build a church building, and we raised money to help them buy the needed supplies to finish the roof and the window grates and some of the finishing touches. Second, we would help them in the mornings with the building in some token way. And those were Marshall's words, in some token way. They really didn't need our help to build. They just needed our help to purchase supplies. But they gave us tasks like removing rubble from the property or preparing the iron grate for painting so that we could participate with them in some ways without taking away meaningful work from local artisans and local people that they could hire to do things. Third, he said that we would have the opportunity for presenting the gospel, both to children in our afternoon children's club and in the evenings as we shared at various churches in the region. And then fourth, the last purpose for our trip that he shared with us, the challenge that stayed with me um, all these years was our Christian witness, which he said would be seen in both our actions and our reactions. Think about that for just a moment. Our Christian witness is seen in both our actions and our reactions. He urged us to show Christ's loving kindness in our actions and especially in our reactions as we faced new and unfamiliar things in a culture that was different from our own. And then Marshall gave one further challenge to our group on that Saturday morning. He told us to ask questions, especially the question, why do they do this? Why do they do this? And the example he gave was the families we were staying with giving their beds to us. He said, let it affect how you live. Let it affect how you live. One of the other leaders, Laurie and I, stayed in Veracruz with the Vicente family. Alvaro and Jamalette and their children, Ana Maria and Roberto, and Jamalette's mother, Isolina. For 10 days, we lived with them, and they gave us their bedroom with two double-sized comfortable beds, as well as the family's two fans. Alvaro slept in the twin bed with their son, Roberto. 
Jamalette slept in the twin bed with their daughter, Anna Maria. And Isolina, who owned her own home and had her own bed, slept in a bunk in the back outside of the main part of the house so that she would be there to help to care for our needs, to cook to, for us, to wash our clothes, and to help in any way that she could. Laurie and I would have been quite content to sleep in the twin beds or in the bunk out in the back of their home. Matter of fact, we might have been more comfortable. It's uncomfortable to take someone's sleeping um, arrangements. Why did our new family give up their comfort on our behalf? Why did they give us their best? It was kindness, and it had a profound effect on our lives. When we describe people as kind, it's based on their actions, isn't it? A person is considered to be kind because of what they do, what they say, how they treat others. The same seems to be true of God himself. Many of the Old Testament scriptures, most of the Old Testament scriptures, that speak of kindness, especially of God's kindness, speak of kindness in the context of what he has done for his people, with words like showing kindness, extending kindness, or doing a kindness. The compassion of the Lord is worked out in the kindness he shows. And his ultimate expression of kindness and compassion came in sending Jesus. Titus 3.4 is a marvelous verse. It reminds us, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Jesus himself was the kindness and love of God. Jesus, God's kindness, both modeled and taught about kindness. He touched the unclean and lonely leper. He befriended the hated tax collector, Zacchaeus. He came to the rescue of the woman about to be stoned for adultery. He fed the crowds rather than sending them away hungry. And the list of his kindnesses could go on and on and on. And then there was his teaching. One day he told a parable that gives us a glimpse into the kindness he expects from us. It's the parable which we refer to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't refer to the man as good, just as a certain Samaritan. But the man is famous, known all over the world as the Good Samaritan. I picked up a book a few years ago while I was grocery shopping. You know those Time Magazine books that are available in the grocery store? It piqued my interest at the end of the aisle. It was, it was called The Hundred Most Influential People Who Never Lived. It's a picture of the cover with good old... Uh, What's his name? Simpson? Homer Simpson. Can't think of his name. Uh, the hundred most influential people who never lived. As I flipped through the book, I was pleased to find that the Good Samaritan was one of them. The book noted that he had such influence that when people do something good for others whom they don't know, they are referred to as Good Samaritans. And some states have even enacted what they call Good Samaritan laws offering limited liability to people who are responding to accidents, emergencies, disasters, or helping a victim of a crime. The character in Jesus' parable has been known as good since that first telling because of the extreme kindness which he showed to a person in need. A man traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho on a commonly traveled road, the distance between the two cities being about 20 miles. 
Jerusalem sits about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho sits about 800 feet below sea level. So in less than 20 miles, a traveler would descend or ascend, depending on which direction you're going, about 3,100 feet. That would be equivalent to about two times the, the uh, height of South Mountain to give you a picture or reference in our area. This was a dangerous road that wound around hills and descended steeply through the desert wilderness. In the fifth century, Jerome tells us that it was called the Red or Bloody Way. Because there were all kinds of places where thieves could hide, travel along this road was dangerous and was typically done in groups or in caravans for safety. The story that Jesus tells has several characters. The first, of course, is the man who was traveling on the road that led from Jerusalem to Jericho. Those who heard the story would assume that this man was a Jew, and what happened to him would come as no surprise to them. As he traveled, he was accosted by robbers who stripped him, beat him, and left him half dead. The next character is a Jewish priest who by chance is traveling along the same way. It's likely that he was on his way home after ministering in the temple. When he saw the wounded man, he passed by on the other side. Perhaps he assumed that the wounded man was dead. According to Jewish law in Numbers 19.11, whoever touches the dead body of anyone would be defiled, unclean for seven days. For a temple priest, that would have been very inconvenient. Though he could have lived by the spirit of God's law and helped the man in need, he went his own way. The next character who happens along the same way is a Levite, an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. The Levites assisted the priests in the temple. So perhaps he too was worried about being defiled by touching a dead man. Or perhaps he suspected that the man was a decoy, one posing to be in injured while a band of thieves waited nearby to ambush him when he stops to offer aid. He too went on his way without the slightest offer of assistance to the injured man. Within the Jewish social structure, if you picture concentric circles, the priests were at the center, and then the next circle would be the Levites, and then the next would be the regular Jewish people. This was so ingrained in culture that even in the synagogue, the priest read first, and then the Levite, and then the regular Jew. So the hearer, hearers of Jesus' story, after hearing about the priest and then about the Levite, were probably expecting the next character to be a regular Jewish person. But Jesus grabbed their attention by going further out in the circles. The next circle would be the tax collectors and the outcasts and sinners. The circle beyond them would have been the Samaritans, and the final circle would have been the Gentiles. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews, half-breeds whom they considered to be dirty dogs. Jesus' listeners would have automatically thought that with the Samaritans' arrival on the scene, the villain had arrived, certainly not the rescuer. The Samaritan, who was not constrained by social lines or by religious laws, was immediately moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion despite the fact that he had every reason not to help this Jewish victim. He was moved with compassion, which incited acts of kindness. The Samaritan took care of the man's wounds, cleaning them with wine as an antiseptic and with oil, which would have been like a bomb, and he bandaged them. 
Then he put the man on his own animal, likely walking the rest of the journey himself. He brought the wounded man to an inn where he continued to take care of the man until the next day. But his care, which had already been amazingly kind and generous compared to the priest and to the Levite, the supposed servants of God, his care does not stop there. He gives two denarii to the innkeeper, the equivalent of two days' wages for a laborer to pay for the man's ongoing care, which in our culture today might be the equivalent of a couple hundred dollars or maybe many hundreds, depending on what your work is. And he also promised to pay whatever else the man's care might cost beyond that. All this for a total stranger who surely would not have done the same for him if the situation had been reversed and if the Jew would have known that the victim was a Samaritan. After telling this story to an expert in the Mosaic Law, Jesus then tells him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. These are not empty words from a mere teacher, but these are words filled with meaning from the one who willingly laid down his very life for us. Go and do likewise. Serve others in need. Inconvenience yourself on behalf of others. Get off your duff and help someone. Close, clothe yourselves with kindness. God's ultimate expression of compassion and kindness came in sending Jesus. God's kindness came at great expense, the life of his beloved son. What does our kindness cost us? Kindness will take our time. It will take our money. It will take our energy. It will take our talents and skills. It will take our resources, maybe our homes, our cars, our clothing, our food. Maybe kindness will cost us our very lives, which I don't say lightly. <clears throat> this past week, the Brethren in Christ Atlantic Conference offered a bus trip to Washington, D.C. to thank the pastors and ministry staff throughout our conference for their service. From our church, uh, Sheila and I had the chance to participate in the trip. After a stop at a ministry venue in D.C. and some lunch, a group of us spent a few hours going through the Holocaust Museum. Perhaps you've been there. It's, it's something that I've wanted to do, though I knew it was something I would not enjoy. Being confronted by the cruelty of humanity was overwhelming at times. It was painful to see the images of hatred and torture and killing portrayed at the museum. But after going through section after section of the museum, seeing displays that reflected the devastating cruelty and inhumane treatment of people during the Holocaust, I came to a room that was like balm to my hurting heart. The room had what was called a wall of rescuers. While the rest of the museum displays were very dark, mostly grays, this wall was much brighter. And on both sides of the wall were panels with lists of names of people not meant to be exhaustive, listed by country. These were names of people who risked their lives, some of whom lost their lives to rescue Jewish people. In addition to the list of names at various points along the wall, there was a photo of a person with a description of who they were and what specifically they had done to rescue others. The opening section of the wall looked like this. 
and it's probably too small for you to read, so I'll tell you what it says. In 1953, the Israeli parliament directed the Yad Vashem Remembrance Authority to establish a memorial to the righteous among the nations who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. A public committee was formed to identify and honor individuals who at personal risk and without remuneration had rescued Jews. This wall is inscribed with the names of more than 10,000 persons honored by Yad Vashem through December 1991. The list in no way reflects the actual proportion of people in each country who helped save Jews. In Denmark, for example, hundreds carried out a collective rescue effort. While the stories, it goes on, while the stories of some rescuers are highlighted, all were men, women, and children of courage and compassion. They regarded their acts as no more than expressions of ordinary decency toward friends, neighbors, and strangers. Thanks, Andrea. The men, women, and children highlighted by this wall of rescuers were just some of the thousands of people who lived out today's scripture. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness. Some of these people gave their lives the most extreme kindness. Most of us won't experience such an extreme, but we're also called to kindness. And no act of kindness is too small in God's accounting. How do I know that no act of kindness is too small to God? I was reading recently at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28. The story comes in the midst of the story of, of Paul, um, who was shipwrecked along with his captors while they were en route to Rome. And Acts chapter 28, verse 2, um, tells of a simple act of, quote-unquote, unusual kindness, the building of a fire by the islanders for Paul and his companions because it was cold and rainy. A simple act that God recorded in the scriptures and that's still remembered 2,000 years later. What does kindness look like to you? To me, it looks like Mary Zimmerman randomly sending a text to ask how you are and to tell you she's praying for you. It looks like someone providing a matching gift to the VBS offering, doubling what the children are able to do, which is such an encouragement to them. It looks like the kitchen team and others working with them, spending hours and hours doing prep work and making soup in order to help the Bible quiz team raise needed funds. It looks like folks handing me gift cards on many of the gift card table Sundays, asking me to anonymously pass along the card to a particular person or persons, and I get to witness how blessed they are by the extra help they receive. It looks like the children's worker who warmly welcomes each little one to their class. It looks like a family giving a car to another family at a time of need. It looks like people helping stressed parents with their children, providing respite and encouragement. It looks like meals provided for a family when a baby is born or when someone is sick or hospitalized. It looks like a person sharing their skill with someone who needs help, whether fixing their computer or replacing a window or changing the oil in their car or providing legal advice or helping with a tax return. It looks like scholarships donated for children to go to summer camp or women to go to their retreat. 
It looks like a cake or a pie made just for you. Or I said to my brother Vu Musili in the first service, maybe it looks like a pot of African peanut soup. It looks like Josiah Thompson graciously saying that the person in front of him won a cake in the cakewalk when it was too close to call. It looks like a card and a brief note that makes a person feel special. It looks like people coming early to make coffee for the church or people staying late to clean it all up. It looks like a student taking time to help another student even though overwhelmed by their own work. It looks like a gift toward helping to build a medical clinic in northwestern Zimbabwe. It looks like a prayer by a brother or sister just when you need it. It looks like a word that cheers up the heart that is anxious. It looks like Pearl Bryant's smile and hug. She seems truly delighted to see you as if you are the most important person in the world. And I'm sorry she's not here to hear me say that. What would kindness look like for you? With your gifts and your abilities and personality and possessions and interests and burdens and relationships and time, what would kindness look like for you? In what ways can you extend kindness to others? Our scripture says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, clothe yourselves with kindness. It's how God plans to fill this world with his love. Through you, through me, it's how he plans to Flood the world with love through our kindness. Lord, we thank you that um, we get to be your hands and feet here and your mouthpiece and, and you call us to kindness. So often our natural self um, is unkind. So often we're um, quick to criticize or quick to be sarcastic or, or quick to be uh, mean-spirited even just inside us. It bubbles out uh, from the corners of our being at times. But you've called us to kindness, and so we ask for your help in living out this scripture and living out this principle in being your people um, in relationship with others, touching them with kindness. And we thank you, God, that we don't have to do it in our own strength, that kindness is one of the fruit of your spirit. So this morning, we ask you to fill us anew with your Holy Spirit as we go into this week to fill us each day, and that kindness would be what comes out of the corners of our being. We pray that it would, um, would show others your love in, in really practical life-changing ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>